How are you? Oh, good. Look at this. Conversation while I'm killing time over here. Okay. <coughs> okay, if you would please turn to the book of First Peter. Just turn over to First Peter chapter chapter one. We will be dealing this morning with verses 22 through the end of chapter 1 and including chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Let's pray. Father, let us never take for granted the mercy, the active power of your grace in causing any of us to pay attention to your word. To hear it with ears that hear. To see it with eyes that see. And to taste it with a hunger for the truth that it reveals. And I ask that you do that in our midst this morning over your eternal, inerrant, infallible word given through your apostle, Peter. Amen. All right. So last week, finished a series on the book of Ephesians, which we're in for a year and a half. And two weeks from Sunday... I'm going to be dealing with another, uh, we're going to be beginning another series. So in the meantime, and in light of there will not be a seminar next week, I was, I was, uh, what was I, commanded or asked to preach on First Peter, this passage, and I was given the topic, the sufficiency of Scripture. So this is a, a wonderful time in the interim between series to preach this this morning. And so that's what I'm going to do. This is it. The scripture is sufficient. Now, what, what, what does that mean? I mean, if you want to better your golf swing, it's not sufficient. So, so what, do we, what do I mean by that? When I say the, the Scripture is sufficient, I mean this. Strip away all programs within the church world. Strip away church buildings. Strip away our schemes of discipleship and books and pamphlets. And all you're left is with Christians and Christians in community and the Bible. It's enough. It is sufficient. When it comes to any of us sinners coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ, Scripture is not only sufficient, it is the thing. As Paul declared in Romans 1, for the Gospel 
is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. There is nothing else that can supplant it. There is nothing else in all of this world that is sufficient to save but the Gospel, the Word of God. Okay. All right. So, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian for 30-some-odd years or three years. I'm born again. I love Jesus. So now what do I do? Okay, got, got that sufficiency to save. I'm saved, so what do, what do I do now? What tool do I use for living my life? What tool is necessary for the life of the local church? The answer is the same. The Scripture is sufficient and necessary for the ongoing Christian life till death, for the local church, for the work of sanctification, for following Jesus, for walking in repentance and faith. The Scripture is the oxygen of the Christian life. So in light of this, I could talk about the travesty of seeker-sensitive models of church, seeker-sensitive messages on Sunday morning, and the need for the exposition of the Scripture, which is sufficient. But that's not this message. That's the implication of this message. That is the implication of the passage that I had been assigned for the seminar. And so I want you to turn there, 1 Peter 1. I'm going to begin with verse 22 and read verses 22 and 23. 1 Peter 1. Peter writes, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. This text is perfect for the topic of the sufficiency of Scripture, because that's what it is about. Because by, by saying the sufficiency of Scripture, what we mean is that it's sufficient for life, for walking according to the Holy Spirit. Or say that, which is you can't do that without the second. Walking according to the Holy Spirit and doing war against our own flesh or sinful natures. The essence of Christian living, if you just take those two, the New Testament sums that up, meaning the same thing, in another way. Saying it this way, love one another. 
as Paul says. He starts quoting the Ten Commandments. He says, well, this is it. They all boil down to love your neighbor as you love yourself because you love them and you don't murder them. You don't sleep with their spouse. You don't steal from them. They're all summed up there. The essence of Christian living is pursuing, loving one another. Okay, got that? That's, that's the life. Okay. Now this text has one and only one main point. And it's simple. And it's right there in the middle of verse 22. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's it. Everything else is support for that. That's the core of the Christian life. That is the point of this passage. And that is where the Scripture comes in. See, if you're in touch with your own inherent sin, selfishness, as much as I'm in touch with mine every day, then that command, love one another earnestly, from heart. If that command is all by itself, do it. It feels absolutely overwhelming. But it's not by itself. Look at it again. Notice, Peter doesn't leave that command just hanging in thin air all along. But he sends the roots of that command deep down into the Scripture. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Producing what? A sincere brotherly love in the command. Therefore, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Why? Because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and the abiding Word of God. In this passage, the power to love one another comes through obedience to the truth of Scripture. Now, I want you to think for me, with me for a minute. It concludes your life, includes my life about our situation here. Born into sin, and even then coming to Jesus, we are different than we were, but sin is still ever-present. Think about if this is not your experience. As we are born... Dependent creatures, not the Creator. We are by definition needy. And we've been born in darkness with a heart that does not look to the only One who could fill me with true satisfaction. And therefore, we all have this gaping hole. This God-shaped 
vacuum, emptiness on the inside of us that we are constantly yearning to fill with the creation, particularly including other persons, which we then use them as means to meet our ends. And that is unloving. That's our problem. That's the opposite of loving your neighbor as you love yourself earnestly from a pure heart. So the question is, how are we, therefore, I've come to Jesus, I love Him, I'm not perfect, I'm still a sinner. How are we to be walking according to this command, imperfectly as we do? How are we to be moving down that road of loving one another? The answer is this. He gives it in the text. It is, it's impossible unless this first initial thing has happened to you. That you fill your God-shaped vacuum with the only one who fits. God. Through Jesus Christ. And to the extent that we do, I found the treasure. I found the rest that Jesus promises. I have it now. I'm experiencing the rest today. Now I have more on top of that to overflow toward another in love. Isn't that how Jesus summarized it all? You want to summarize the entire law and the prophets? This is your Lord. Love the Lord your God. Get your vacuum filled. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind, all your soul and all your strength. Get it? Get it? Okay? Now, go out that way and love your neighbor as you would love yourself. Do unto them as you would have them do unto you. And according to this passage in 1 Peter 1, that happens by the miracle of new birth through the Word of God and our ongoing obedience, purifying our souls with that Word. That's the theology of the text. Let me give an illustration of that. Well, really, it's Paul's illustration. Paul uses an illustration of a number of other churches, like in Berea, Philippi, Thessalonica, as he writes to the Corinthians, because what he wants is, don't you, look, if you don't have a heart to give away your hard-earned money, then don't give. So he appeals to what Christianity really is by using the example of others and of the dynamic I just laid out. Because Paul is raising a whole bunch of money for the church in Jerusalem who is in desperate need because of famine. He's been doing it for a couple years through all his churches. And this is how he appeals to the Corinthians starting in 2 Corinthians 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. And here it is. 
For in a severe test of affliction, oh, they had their problems and their financial problems. But in the midst of their severe affliction, their abundance of, there it is, <laughs> their abundance of joy. That's the God-shaped back. Which came through the Word of God. The Gospel. Their abundance of joy mixed with their extreme financial poverty produced something. It overflowed in the wealth of their generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Not only that, Paul goes on to say, they were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief, financial relief, of the saints. That's how... Paul, a gospel-centered man, appeals. Now watch what he said. This is why he even said, he says why. Why I gave you the Macedonian illustration, Corinthians, is this. I say this not as a command, but in order to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also Genuine. That was Paul's idea of genuine love that acted. Okay. Okay. Now, there's his illustration. Peter essentially says the same thing here. Chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. The main clause is clear. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Okay. In other words, not just actions. Don't just give your time. Don't just make a meal. But, according to Peter, what he's shooting for is something is to be going on on the inside of us that motivates the actions of love. Earnestly. From a heart of love. Not fake feelings, but as he said right before that then, the Word of God, your obedience to it, was producing something in you you're a true believer, and he called it a sincere brotherly love. Literally, sincere is word where we get our word unhypocritical. An unhypocritical heart of love that is sincere toward each other in the body. So, Peter's clear. Do the acts but don't be satisfied with a heart that's not in it, that doesn't spring from joy in Jesus. You're right up here, guys. Just look up here. 
Let me, I'm going to repeat it now for, because of this. Peter says, do the acts, but don't be satisfied with a heart that's not in the acts. That don't spring from joy in Jesus. That's his command. And that feels weighty. And I personally feel a deep need help because I am constantly in touch with my unloving selfish desires so how are we Christians to deal with this command that is clearly given to all Christians everywhere this is a general epistle to all the churches that's the question And Peter answers the question right here in the text by showing us the source of genuine love. And the answer is in his two supporting arguments for the one main command. So I'm going to read again, starting with verse 22. See if you just look at it, see if you see it. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, therefore, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Why? Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and the abiding Word of God. The source of daily, weekly, monthly, yearly walking with the Lord Jesus is the Word of God. It's not only sufficient, it is absolutely necessary. He calls it first the truth. The truth by which the Holy Spirit birthed new life in us and by which the Holy Spirit produces hope and faith which overflows in earnestly loving one another from a pure heart. This is the Holy Spirit-produced love that springs out of Peter's two supporting arguments for the command, love each other. I'll repeat again. The first is at the beginning of verse 22, which is causal. Having purified means because because you have purified. And that's a perfect tense verb. Which means it's not merely a past action. It began in the past and it has ongoing, continuous implications of what you're doing. You have and are 
purifying your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. But how did you do it? He says how. Because you, excuse me, purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Because of that, here's his flow. Therefore, therefore, based on that, love one another. His second supporting argument is verse 23. Get the flow. Love one another because, there it is, because you've been born again by the Word of God. So according to this passage, if there's going to be genuine, true, ongoing love in the life of a Christian, then these two things have to be our experience. Having been born again by the Word of God, and our hearts must be being purified by our obedient response to the Word of God. And the Scripture is not only sufficient for this, it is absolutely necessary for the Christian walk. Okay, let me restate everything I just said in a little nutshell before we move on now. It's this. The power to walk by the Holy Spirit in loving others comes through our hope, our joy, and our faith in God through Jesus Christ. And that comes through the Word of God, the Scripture, the Bible, the truth. Peter's clear here. We can obey this command to love only because something has been worked upon us. The end of verse 22, pick it up. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. Since there, it means because. He gives the reason. And the reason is you've been born again. And that's a passive voice verb. You didn't do it. It was done to you. Someone else caused you. That's how Peter actually says it in chapter 1, verse 3. The Father caused you to be born again unto a living hope. And here, it's passive. Something happened to us. We've been born again. God did it. And He didn't just do it. He did it with a tool. He used an instrument, a means. And Peter says that instrument is the Word of God. 
Because you've been born again by or through the Word of God. A means is a tool. It's a tool by which you do anything. The man cut down the tree by means of an axe. The axe is instrumental. You have to have it. Where the tree doesn't go down, that's how the man did it. God caused you to be born again by the acts of the Word of God. Preached. Read. Heard read. Thought about. Discussed. And what we see there, there is the objective truth that's outside of us existed long before any of us in this room existed. The Holy Scripture, it's there. And its meaning was there. Whether, whether You don't add any meaning to it. It's there. If you read it correctly, you get the meaning. You have to have it. And then there is the subjective experience called new birth. And that together the Word and the work of the Spirit and new birth with the Word produces a Christian. And so Peter here, he makes clear that new birth is the foundation of true heartfelt love for others. You see it? Give me a nod, please. Now, just notice real briefly that the main emphasis in the passage is the acts. It's the means. The means of life with God is the Scripture. It's the Word of God. He doesn't just emphasize new life by the Word of God, but something specific about the Word of God. Let's read it again and hear it. Since you have been born again, now he could just say, through the Word of God. And it means the same thing. But that's not how he said it. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, Planted, but imperishable seed. It's his metaphor, so he says, okay, let me apply the metaphor. In other words, through the living and abiding means remaining Word of God. That's his emphasis. His point is, believer, this book... The Scripture lasts forever if you trust in it. And this is how Peter actually does say it in this very letter elsewhere too. You will never be disappointed. If you bank on it, you'll never be proved wrong. And so he dr drives it home by quoting Isaiah 40. For all flesh is like grass. 
And all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the good news that was preached to you. Now, I know as you look at your Bible, you see a big two there saying, now into chapter two. Horribly placed. Peter didn't write chapter two. Peter is not done. What comes next is tightly connected to what we had just seen. That's why chapter 2 begins with the word in your ESV with the word so. Or in other words, therefore. Which means, did you get what I just said in verses 22 to 25? Get it. That's foundation now. I'm going to draw an inference from that, a conclusion from that. Therefore, and that's the flow. In other words, what he is saying now as we go into chapter 2 is, because the Scripture is sufficient and it is necessary, therefore, put away unloving attitudes and acts. Okay, get the flow. His main point in what we had just seen is love one another earnestly from a pure heart. He connected it to the Word of God as a source. And therefore, put away unloving attitudes and actions. His point hasn't changed. He just hits it at a different angle. So let's read verses 1 to 2 to start here. Or the 1 to 3, the whole thing, and see if you hear it. Therefore, because you got clearly what I, Peter had just written, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn Infants long for the pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up into salvation. <laughs> Since indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The Word is so important that the Holy Spirit here through the Apostle Peter, commands us not to be content with lukewarmness toward the Lord, toward His Word. Like newborn infants, here's the command, long for the pure spiritual milk 
that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now, that word translated long for, it means long for. Or to say it differently, it means desire strongly, crave, hunger after. That's the command. Hunger after the Scripture. Now, on one level, that is strange. It's really strange. A lot of people get mad at you if you ever commanded them to feel anything. What do you mean, you can't command me to feel? I just have feelings. Feelings are what they are. I can do, but don't tell me to feel. I don't have that desire. How can you command me to desire? I either desire or I don't. Well, the worldview of the God of creation revealed in Holy Scripture is different than that. Here, He doesn't just command actions. Read your Bible. He commands desires. And this is what I really want to drive home if you understand the salvation and how God does it and who He really is. That command is extremely hopeful. Because the same God who blew the wind that you didn't deserve if you belonged to Him, the same God who acted and brought you from spiritual death to spiritual life by the Word of God caused you to be born again. He gave you new desires. Christ, and you were saved, is the same one who now commands desire the Word. Which means, because this is every one of us, if you feel numb, if you feel no desire to commune with God, you feel zero desire to delve into the Word of life, it means you don't have to stay there. To a person who has no appetite, I'm not hungry at all. God says, get hungry. To a person who has no desire to eat the food of the Word of God, the text says, get hungry. And then Peter, <laughs> he, he, he just drives it home. He says, this is what I really mean. Because he gives us this word picture. Be desperate like a, a hungry baby at 3 a.m. in the morning. That's his picture. The command is long for, desire, crave the word like a newborn baby craves mommy's milk. If you haven't had a baby yet, they scream for it until they get it. 
That's the command. Don't forget the first word of chapter 2. So, meaning, therefore. So here's the paraphrase of what he's doing. Here's the connection of that therefore with what came before. Peter is saying, since the Word of God is what birthed new life in you, and it's the power to live the life of love, Therefore, desire the Word of God all the more. Go on being sustained by the mother's milk of the Word because that's how babies grow. That's how believers grow up unto salvation. Now, in the context the term desire what? Pure spiritual milk. In the context, it is clearly referring to the Scripture. To the living Word of God that was preached to you that he just said at the end of chapter 1. But he didn't just say here the Word of God. Actually, the, the ESV is, is an accurate translation. Pure spiritual milk. Logikos, which is close to logos. It should not be translated there. Word. It is the idea of spiritual. Okay. So by saying, crave the pure spiritual milk, Peter's up to something. He is driving home at something that is much deeper than merely read the Bible or merely know stuff from the Bible. We all know people with a lot of Bible knowledge who don't appear to be moved the way that they should be moved by what the Scripture says. There's no joy. There's no hope. There's no ongoing loving of others. There's no repentance for their sin. They can tell you all the ingredients that go into this marvelous five-course meal. They even may have a Ph.D. and teach a university course on the ingredients that go into this five-course meal. But they never eat the meal. The Scripture is sufficient if you eat it. And I say that because of the context. So now look at the connection between verse 2 and verse 3. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up 
into salvation if, or first class condition really, since indeed you have tasted that the Lord to you is good. Long for the pure spiritual milk since you've tasted that the Lord is good. That verse 3, since you've tasted that the Lord is good, is the reason for the command of verse 2. Crave it. Hunger. If you've been born again, let it go. This is true. And so he says, let it go. So he says, crave it. The logic goes like this. Because you have tasted of the kindness of the Lord to you personally, in the context of being born again by the Word of God, therefore, go on longing, go on eating, go on tasting of that pure spiritual milk. Pure spiritual milk consists of the Word and of the Scripture. But it's more than that. It is the kindness, the goodness of the Lord experienced through the Word. That is what is sufficient about the Scripture to any particular soul. It's the ongoing food for genuine believers throughout their sanctification. And that, what we have seen, is to be every one of our interactions ongoingly alone and in the local church with the Bible. It's twofold. Interact with what is written, not what you think is written. Do your best to treat it honestly and let it speak. Its meaning is on the pages of the Scripture, objectively. Deal with the content of Scripture. Secondly, prayerfully experience the goodness of God to you in it. In other words, taste and see. Taste and see. Eat and see. Oh, Holy Spirit, bring me to repentance. Fill me with the joy that's in the text. Let me see. Let me eat it. The Word of God, the written Word of God, is our food. It is our life. And Psalm 19 depicts this perfectly when David writes, The law of the Lord is perfect, 
reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Even much fine gold sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Not merely know that honey is sweet because my mom and dad told me so. Because my pastor said so. Or because I took a whole semester course on honey and how sweet it is. And what flavors you get at different parts of the country and everything else. And my professor knew so much. And I now know so much. Have you ever tasted honey? Well, no. Taste and see that the Word, the God who created you, who spoke the Word and had it written, taste and see His goodness to you personally. To know what the Bible says is essential, but it's not sufficient. For salvation and sanctification. To know what the Bible says is absolutely essential, but it's not enough. We must be welcoming the message that is there. We must taste the goodness of God to us in the Word. It is the children's food. Now, without it, I promise you, without it, spiritual destruction is looming on the horizon for you. That's what the context says. The result of feeding upon the goodness of God in the Word is that it destroys our sinful, unloving attitudes and actions. I'll read it again. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy 
and envy and slander like newborn babies desire long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up unto salvation. The large context from the end of chapter 1 to chapter 2 is that God causes new birth through the Word of God and that's the source of loving one another. Then in chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, he expands on why the spiritual milk of the Word is so vital for the ongoing Christian life. And his point is, the more you taste and the more you experience the Lord's personal goodness to you through the preaching, through the reading, through the Scripture, is the more you get rid of unloving attitudes and actions. Love others. How? By new birth, which happens through the Scripture. The truth of the Scripture. And happens ongoingly in the purifying of your souls. That's how. Get rid of unloving behaviors, which is the way to love others. How? By tasting and desiring and being with the goodness and the intimacy of God your Father through the Word of God. The Scripture, how it comes in all its forms. I mean, particularly in Peter's writing that, you know, they didn't all had the privilege to take this thing home with them. Bible. The public reading of it the public teaching and the public preaching of it was huge in what he's talking about. This, if you had nothing else, this is sufficient to get you to endure until the end. But one day, you'll hear, well done. Well done. Good. Faithful. Because you've been chosen from the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you. For we who believe, we thank you that you did not leave us to only hear with the ears of our head and to see with the eyes in our head the truth, the gospel. But you gave us ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to cling to Christ and to repent, to see all that you have provided through your Son, now and in the future, for the treasure that it really is. You are good. Continue to glorify your name in our midst. Amen.